We seek the Lordship of Christ in every area of our lives. We renounce self. We renounce status. We renounce attention on ourselves. And we fling all of the glory and all the attention on Christ for all of our lives. This is what it means to be a true, faithful disciple to Christ. This is Andrew Smith pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. I want you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark once again. We return to our study in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We had just a little hiatus last week, but we want to return now to this section of Mark's Gospel where our Lord has given to us kingdom principles. He has spoken about what we refer to as kingdom economics. He gave us some words there in Mark chapter 10 regarding that. And he has also spoken about kingdom evangelism. But this morning we want to speak about kingdom ethics. I want you to stand to your, t- to your feet as we read Mark chapter 10 beginning in verse number 32. I'll read down through verse 45. This is our sermon text. The Bible says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they, that is Jesus and the disciples, were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, They began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God add his blessing to his holy word. Please be seated as we beseech the Lord one last time, asking for his grace 
to help us as we study his precious word. Our Father, please grant us your grace to hear your word. Grant us your grace to obey your word. Grant us your grace to proclaim your word. Help us to be citizens of your kingdom that serve for your glory and not for self-interest. We pray these things as your spirit brings to bear upon our souls the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 10. Be with us, be with our spirits. Empower us, strengthen us, give us clarity of mind as we study your truth. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen. At the heart of sinful man is the desire to control. At the heart of sinful man is the desire to seize power. At the heart of sinful man is a desire to be a law unto himself, a God unto himself. And as I've just read these verses, here in Mark chapter 10, it's clear that this was the sin of the apostles. The sin of desiring power, the sin of desiring prestige, the the sin of wanting to dominate others, to receive recognition rather than others. If we're honest this morning, we will confess that this is our sin as well. This lies at the heart of even Christians. If it was true of the apostles, it is true of us as well. On one occasion, Jesus said these words. He said, if you abide in my word You are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John chapter 8. The truth will set you free. The gospel will set you free. What Jesus did not mean from that is that the gospel frees us from sin in the sense that we automatically become perfect. He frees us from the penalty of sin. That is true. But when he says the truth will set you free, he is not saying that we have freedom from truth itself. He is not saying that we have freedom to live any way that we want to live. He is saying that the gospel has freed us so that we can live truthfully and we can live rightly, that we can live according to God's law by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that the truth sets us free from the law of God. The truth sets us free from accountability. The truth sets us free to be a law unto ourselves. He's saying that the truth sets us free to finally obey God's law and glorify Him. That we are no longer slaves to sin, as Paul says in Romans 6.18, but now we have become slaves of righteousness. He is our Lord, He is our King, and we submit to Him. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, those whom he foreknew he also predestined be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified. This is the progressive nature of the spirit of God and the soul of a person who has truly been redeemed. They will someday be glorified. We're not glorified yet. We're in the process of sanctification in which we are being conformed to the very image of Christ. That is why we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We seek the lordship of Christ in every area of our lives. We renounce self. We renounce status. We renounce 
attention on ourselves and we fling all of the glory and all the attention on Christ for all of our lives. This is what it means to be a true, faithful disciple to Christ. The passage before us tells us that the gospel and in particular the kingdom and the ethics of the kingdom opposes competition to Christ's authority. As his Lord, he has saved us. As king, he reigns over us. We are subjects to his kingdom. We've been commissioned to bring all people into submission unto his lordship as much as there is power within us. At best, as Christians, we are his under-shepherds, serving the shepherd for the interests of his kingdom and not our own. To put it very simply, to put it very frankly, and to put it very bluntly, the central ethic of Christ's kingdom is Christ's rulership and his lordship. We are, as Christians, duty-bound to see his reign in all areas of life without our own self-glory getting in the way, shining all of the light upon Jesus Christ because he is the light. This includes, but is not limited to, not merely church life, but also the realm of government, the arts, education, really every category of life is to be brought in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be glorified in all things. This passage tells us that that is not what we are hardwired to. We have a tendency like the apostles to want the glory, to want the fame, to want the prestige, to want the attention, to want the credit at the cost of others not receiving that and worst of all, Christ not receiving that glory. In the next episode, blind Bartimaeus in verses 46 and following asks for sight. Jesus says, what can I do for you? If you are able, help me to see. Bartimaeus asks for sight. In this episode, James and John, the disciples who should have known better, ask for status, prestige, authority, power, attention, and glory. And dearly beloved, I want to offer a warning to you before we look at this passage in detail that that is going to be a tendency that you are going to have in your heart. If you are a Christian man, you are going to have a tendency to dominate and domineer your wife and your children in a way in which God has not authorized you to do. This is not a problem in the world. The opposite is true in the world, right? A man has been feminized and effeminized. And usually uh, in worldly marriages, the woman is the head. But in Christian reformed circles, the tendency is going to be for you as a Christian man to want to dominate your wife, to dominate your children in a way that does not bring glory to God but brings glory to yourself. That is sinful. If you are a Christian man and you have any sort of authority uh, in the business world or in your vocation, you have employees underneath you, your tendency is going to be to dominate them, not to serve them, to seek glory and attention for yourself. 
leaders in the church today obviously have that tendency to lord it over those under their charge, to do that in a harsh way, in a demeaning way, in a domineering way. There's a lot of that going on today, especially with the advent of the church planting movement, the church growth movement, and what you have as ministers and what you have as Elders who establish their own little kingdoms and then they try to control everyone in their little kingdom, in their little church. That is a pursuit of self-glory. And I'll tell you where it ends up. It ends up in narcissism and it ends up from elders falling from their positions of leadership. And when that sort of domineering thing happens in the home, it leads to a wife not respecting her husband, children not respecting their dad. When that happens in the workplace, it hurts and mars your Christian testimony because an unbeliever who works for you doesn't want to work for a tyrant. The ethic of Christ's kingdom is the ethic of service. It is the ethic of giving glory to Christ above all things. Jesus has spoken about kingdom evangelism and what that looks like. He has spoken about kingdom economics and what that looks like. Now he speaks about kingdom ethics. The central ethic to service in Christ's kingdom is service done for God's glory, not for self-glory. And in this passage, verses 32 through 45, we see three cardinal rules of Christ's kingdom ethics. What does it mean to serve the interests of Christ's kingdom? That includes not just your service in the church and the use of your gift. That includes your service for Christ's kingdom in the home. How you glorify Christ in your home. How you glorify Christ in the workplace. How you glorify Christ in the community. In all of those areas, there are three cardinal rules to kingdom ethics. Number one, we see in verses 32 through 38 that we are to have our lives marked by sacrifice over status. Number two, verses 39 through 41, contentment over competition. And number three, verses 42 through 45, duty over domination. My prayer is that whoever you are, whether you're a man or a woman or maybe even a young person, that you would understand The ethics of Christ's kingdom is an ethic of love and service and sacrifice. This is what marks the true citizens of Christ's kingdom. And there are three cardinal rules. Number one, that your life be marked by sacrifice over status. Sacrifice over status. We see in verses 32 through 38, this pursuit of sacrifice by our Lord as he's on the way to Jerusalem, contrasted with the pursuit of James and John seeking status in the kingdom. Notice with me verse 35, verse 32, excuse me. It says that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. He is on the road going to Jerusalem from Perea. Uh, by way, as we're going to see, to Jericho, we'll see in the preceding verses, up to Jerusalem, as verse 32 says. This was an ascent up, physically speaking, with the feet to 
higher elevation, but also spiritually speaking, with the heart, it was an ascent on the highway to Mount Zion where the temple of the Lord was. This is likely March of the last year of our Lord's life. Jesus is traveling with the apostles to Jerusalem, and all of the people going to Jerusalem would be going to offer their annual sacrifices at Passover. Jesus is going, however, to offer himself up as a sin offering. As Isaiah 53 says, he made an offering for guilt. He understood his mission from the days of John, maybe even earlier than that, but at least from the days of John, when John looked at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As John 10.4 says, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Here is a picture of that. Jesus, the shepherd, is walking ahead of the apostles. They behind him and he's going to offer himself up for the sheep to lay down his life for the sheep. John 10.11, the good shepherd goes to Jerusalem where he plans to lay down his life for the sheep to make himself a sacrifice for sins. Here's what you need to see, and this is what Mark is bringing out. For Jesus, the way up, his status at the right hand of God, first of all, requires going down in humility at the cross and in the tomb. Mark points out, Jesus was walking ahead of them. I find that very interesting. Jesus was walking ahead of them, indicating his determined, resolute steps, setting his face, as Isaiah 50, verse 7 says, like a flint. He already predicted twice, hadn't he? His crucifixion and his coming suffering. Here he walks ahead of the apostles. He went willingly, the disciples reluctantly. He goes speedily, they go slowly. He is leading the way, they are lagging behind. We need to give them a little bit of credit, however, because at least they're trusting him, right? At least they're following him. He's walking ahead of them. He knows the mission to which the Father has sent him. But notice it says in verse 32, and they, that is the apostles, were amazed. They were amazed at what? First of all, his conviction and his willingness to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. And it says, those who followed were also amazed. Afraid. As Jesus drove forward with conviction regarding his mission, they dragged their feet. They were aware of his two previous predictions. They were scared about the fate that awaited their master. They were scared about the fate that possibly awaited them. Most people that walk to their execution walk slowly. Jesus walked quickly. This was the divine mission the Father had sent him to accomplish. The disciples are fearful at the prospect of what awaits their master, what this will mean for him, what this will mean for them, what this will mean for the kingdom. This is an all-time low point for Jesus and the apostles. A great moment of fear and amazement coupled together. Jesus recognizes this, and in order to remove the fear, to restore the confidence of the apostles that he was on the path before him, the Father had set him on, Jesus now gives a third prediction just to solidify that what he is getting ready to do willingly is exactly the will of the Father. Notice the end of verse 32, and taking the twelve again, he takes them aside, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Now I believe there is a larger band of disciples that is following Jesus and the 12. 
And so the picture is Jesus walking ahead of all of them, then the twelve sort of lagging behind, and then behind them the larger band of disciples. There is a pecking order that is taking place in this pilgrimage to celebrate the Passover. So what does Jesus do? He takes the twelve aside. He does this a number of times because the outer band of disciples and the larger crowds would not be able to bear what Jesus is going to share with the apostles. They can barely bear it, and they are the foundation of the church. But he begins to tell them what things should happen. Verse 33, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Behold, Jesus says, we go up to Jerusalem. That brought with it the ominous prediction for the disciples' own sharing in his suffering. That's why they were so amazed This is uh, the third prediction Jesus made. Back in chapter 8 and verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And that prediction, Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things. There was a note of necessity. And the second prediction in chapter 9, if you look at it with me, and verse 31 Jesus said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed after three days, he will rise. This is a note of necessity. They will kill him. In this third prediction, it is the most detailed of all here in Mark chapter 10. There are really seven details of Jesus' suffering. First of all, he says we are going up to Jerusalem. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. We see that fulfilled, if you go with me to chapter 14 and verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. That was Jesus before the council. Jesus is predicting that, and that was fulfilled in chapter 14, verse 53. Not only that, but Jesus says in verse 33, that he will be condemned to death. That is fulfilled in chapter 14, before the council, verse 55. The chief priests, the whole council, were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And it says that they found none, but eventually they did find it, and they condemned him to death. On in, all the way to verse 60. For you have heard his blasphemy, what is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Verse 33 also says that he will be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. The hands of the Gentiles, that is the Romans. That was fulfilled in chapter 15. If you turn there with me in verse 1, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus. They led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, that is the Gentiles, that is the Romans. Then in verse 34, the fourth detail, it says they will mock him. That happened in chapter 15, 
beginning in verse 16, the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. They called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak, twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. They began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed, spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. But before they did that, back in verse 34, it says they also flogged him or scourged him. We read about that in verse 15 of Mark 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged or beat, flogged Jesus, they delivered him to be crucified. He was mocked, spit upon, as verse 34 says, flogged, and obviously they killed him. Chapter 15 and verse 24, they crucified him. They divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And then, of course, the end of verse 34, Jesus says, After three days he will arise. Mark 16 records the resurrection. This is the most detailed prediction that Jesus gives of his crucifixion. He points out that the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, and the scribes, as it says there in verse 33, that is the supreme court of Israel, would be the ones responsible for this. This would end in a trial, and it would conclude with the death penalty. Jesus understood that he would be crucified on a Roman cross. He knew that because he knew that was the will of the Father. He also knew, as he predicts here, that he would be handed over to the Gentiles. Since the Romans did not allow Jews to independently carry out executions, it would be the Jewish Supreme Court that would deliver Jesus over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, that is to Pilate, and then he would have his soldiers carry out the orders. These Gentiles, these Romans would mock him and spit upon him. He would be crucified, but after three days he would rise again. It's very clear, isn't it, that Jesus is God. It's very clear that Jesus is omniscient. It's very clear that Jesus understood Isaiah 52 and 53. He applied that passage to himself, the suffering servant of Yahweh. A passage, by the way, that the Jews traditionally associated with the suffering servant, but not with the Messiah. They didn't see those as the, as the same person. But Jesus understood that. It is amazing the details of which Jesus understood he would accomplish the will of the Father. Jesus was so self-aware of his identity. Jesus was so aware of a proper interpretation of the Old Testament as a theologian, that he understood Psalm 22 was about himself. On the cross, the first verse of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the words of Christ. He understood Psalm 22 was prophetically pointing forward to his crucifixion. Verse 6 says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Jesus understood this was about him. Jesus understood that Psalm 22 was prophetic, for dogs encompass me. 
a company of evil doers, doers encircle me. I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breath. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus was aware he would be crucified on a Roman cross. He was God in human flesh. He understood His mission. Even when the apostles didn't. This is now the third prediction of His suffering. He would not receive glory apart from suffering. He would not receive a crown apart from the cross. There would be no resurrection apart from crucifixion. And apart from crucifixion and resurrection, there would be no ascension and session at the right hand of God. Really, this shouldn't surprise us. It was Jesus in Matthew 17 that predicted there was a fish who had a coin in its mouth. It was Jesus in John 4 who was aware that the Samaritan woman whom he never met had been married before. It was Jesus in Mark 11, as we're going to see, who who knew that a colt would be there waiting for him to ride on. It was Jesus in Matthew 21 and also Mark's gospel in chapter 13 that predicted the destruction of Jerusalem that occurred in A.D. 70. Read your history books. It was Jesus that predicted the glorious victory of the gospel through history. Before his death in Matthew 24, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Jesus was fully aware of exactly what he was doing He was not a victim of the Father. He was obedient to the will of His Father. He willingly went to die. Now all of this is contrasted. This sort of sacrifice that Christ is making is contrasted with the sort of status that the other twelve won, and in particular, James and John. You remember after the first prediction of His suffering back in chapter 8, it was Peter that pridefully tried to prevent Jesus from suffering. And you remember what Jesus told Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. Get out of the way. I know the will of my Father. After the second prediction, there was also pride with the disciples. Do you remember that? Back in chapter 9, they were having a discussion on the way. Verse 34 says, arguing with one another about who was the greatest. I mean, it seems that every time Jesus predicts his suffering, every time Jesus predicts the fact that he will be sacrificed for sin, that the disciples do the exact opposite in arrogance and in pride, trying to stand in Jesus' way, even to the point of arguing which of them is the greatest. Not exactly modeling before us the type of true leadership Jesus was modeling. Now here in verse 35, they pridefully want to stake their status in the kingdom before the intense sacrifices are made. That's what this is about. Mark it. They wanted their share of honor and high status. And that's what they ask for, beginning in verse 35. And before they even ask the question, they make a shocking admission. Notice your Bibles. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And that's essentially like asking for a blank check. 
that they could cash in in order to secure a special place of status in the glory of the coming kingdom. This is like the immaturity of a child who naively tries to get from his parents something that they know they probably won't get if they outright ask for it. So they're sort of trying to soften Jesus, buttering him up by getting Jesus to commit to their request before they even ask it. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Trying to twist Jesus' hand to agree before he knows the specific request. And on a side note, I want to just tell you that that is oftentimes the way many Christians view prayer. That if they say the right words and they put it in just the right way, they can manipulate and twist God and get God to do what they want. But that's not the way prayer works. Jesus will not respond to that sort of request. And so he says in verse 36, What do you want me to do for you? I think he knew their hearts. I think he knew exactly what they wanted. Because he's the holy, sinless son of God, he can read hearts, but also because it's not hard to put two and two together. This was the pattern of the disciples. Anytime there was talk of sacrifice and suffering, they didn't want anything to do with that. They wanted status, glory, and honor. So we read in verse 37, they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. I guess we have to give them some credit for believing that his kingdom was going to come, right? We have to give them some credit that they understood he was going to establish his messianic reign. He was going to usher in his kingdom. They didn't understand the timing of that. And quite frankly, they understood the nature of the kingdom wrongly, not according to the Old Testament or later what they would write about in the New Testament. The Spirit of God would bring those things uh, to mind and bring clarity to them. But here they're picturing Jesus essentially high on his throne, surrounded by servants, with one at his right hand and the other at his left. Uh, That's the image. That's the picture they they see. Jesus on his throne, James and John at the left and the right. Or, Or maybe they have in mind the messianic banquet with Jesus at the center of the table and they have the place of status, one on the right and one on the left. They are envisioning and requesting Self-glory, that's what you need to see. Perhaps they wanted a role like that of Aaron and Hur. In Exodus chapter 17, who supported Moses' hands in the battle against the Amalekites, one on one side and one on the other that led to a great victory. Perhaps they wanted what David had. We read about it in 2 Samuel, where all the mighty men were at the right hand of David and at the left hand of King David. Maybe they had the vision of Micaiah on their mind who saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right and on his left. Second Chronicles chapter 18 and verse 18. Or maybe they even had that day in Israel's history in Nehemiah chapter 8 when the priest surrounded Nehemiah as he stood at the wooden podium and pulpit that was built for him and they're on the platform as he reads the law of God and they have their positions of status. They wanted the glory of the Old Testament prophets. They wanted the glory of the holy angels in heaven. They wanted to be seen as supreme as being the right-hand man and the left-hand man of Jesus. Jewish custom said that when three Jewish men were walking along, 
The teacher was always in the middle. The greatest disciple was to his right and the next greatest to his left. This is what James and John are requesting. Did you notice that in order to make that request, they have to climb over the other apostles? They're leaving the rest of them out. They don't seem to care about the others. Why James and John? I believe it's because they had a sense of entitlement. First of all, if you remember all the way back in chapter 1, verse 20, they were part of a very lucrative fishing business. They were the sons of Zebedee, and Zebedee even had hired servants. You think that his sons were like servants to their father? No, he had hired servants. These sons had high positions in the business, telling other people what to do. This was a family of wealth. Not only that, but when you turn back with me to Matthew chapter 20, which is the parallel version of Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 20, it wasn't just James and John that sought these positions. Matthew 20 verse 20 says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say to these two sons of mine, that they are to sit one at your right hand, one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. The fuller version is not just James and John, it's James and John and their mother. Full-grown men, why would they bring their mother? Well, most biblical scholars believe that their mother was the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. That would make Jesus cousins with James and John. His aunt is coming to him to make an authoritative request for her entitled sons who are wealthy, who are used to attention, who are used to positions of authority, who are used to people below them. But at the heart of the reason was pride, right? Selfish ambition. Seeking their own glory, not that of Christ's. And the reality was, as Jesus indicates in verse 38, they were not ready or willing quite yet to make the necessary sacrifices that would reward them a status that they sought because they wanted glory apart from suffering. Notice verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In other words, Jesus is asking these questions. Now, I I think it's funny because we see that they actually answer these questions. I don't think these were questions Jesus wanted answered. These are rhetorical questions. And oftentimes as a teacher, I will ask a rhetorical question and inevitably someone in the audience will answer it. I don't really want you to answer it. I want you to think in your heart about what the answer is. And that's what Jesus is seeking here. By these rhetorical questions, he is telling them something. And what is he telling them? He's telling them, you want a crown apart from a cross. You have left the others out. This is backwards. It's backwards to Jesus' example. He is going to Jerusalem. He is sacrificing himself in order to receive a crown They want a crown, and then, if they are in the right position in the kingdom, they'll have less suffering, less sacrifices. They're consumed with selfish ambition. And really, this is a selfish agenda, trying to score points with Jesus based on family relations, 
revealing their pride and lack of humility. To put it quite bluntly, this is pure and complete evil on the part of James and John. And Jesus calls them out. He uses two metaphors here in verse 38. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Now Jesus would reference this in Matthew chapter 26, speaking about the cup of the Father's wrath that um, he would drink. Going a little further in the garden, he said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It's a reference to the wrath of God he drink down for sinners. And that baptism, to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, that is best understood as the flood of God's furious wrath overwhelming Jesus in the place of his sinful people. But to drink a cup was also an Old Testament idiom meaning to fully undergo an experience. It, it could be a good experience or a bad experience. For example, in Psalm 16.5, the psalmist says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. To drink that cup is to drink blessing of the Lord. Or Psalm 23, you're familiar with it. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Or Psalm 116, verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. So to drink the allotment God gives to us, to drink His cup, means to drink His blessing. But in the Old Testament, it also meant to drink judgment, to drink wrath, to drink something bitter. For example, Psalm 75 and verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. They'll drink it down to the last bitter drop. Or Isaiah 51, 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. For Jesus to drink that cup, of course, meant suffering vicariously for sinners. But for the disciples, and here's Jesus' point in verse 38, it was a willingness to suffer persecution for His namesake. It's a willingness to understand exactly what John said in the book of Revelation. In John chapter 12 and verse 17, here is the history of it. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is Satan against the church. Jesus said, you will be persecuted for my namesake. You will be hated for my namesake. You will suffer for me. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, and they will flog you in their synagogues. They will drag you before governors and kings for my namesake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles." And when they deliver you, don't be anxious about what you're going to speak, what you're going to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that moment. Our Lord's simple point to James and John, and by the way, by extension to us, is a lesson we should take to heart. 
Are we willing to drink the cup of persecution, the cup of suffering? Are we willing to be baptized with the flood, the overwhelming waves of suffering that enter our lives as Christians? Here's the point Jesus is making. From verse 38, the degree of reward and honor we enjoy in the kingdom, whatever God determines it to be, corresponds to the degree of suffering we're willing to endure. Every Christian suffers, but do we suffer with faith? Do we suffer with hope? Do we suffer as a joyful sacrifice for Christ's sake? The degree we do partly determines the status and the honor that we receive. And to be sure, our suffering does not result in the reward of salvation. Only Christ's suffering results in that. But Paul did tell us to rejoice, didn't he? In fact, Peter told us that. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 that we are to rejoice in our suffering. We are to participate in Christ's sufferings. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.5, we are to embrace the suffering of Christ which is ours in abundance, because so also is the comfort abundant through Christ. This will result in being maligned for Christ, Matthew 10.25. Hated by Christ, in Mark 13, Jesus refers to this, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This will mean being persecuted for the sake of Christ. Not to the same degree. We won't receive equal persecution, but some level of persecution. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Paul understood that as an apostle. He said in 2 Corinthians 4.10 that he carried about in the body the dying of Jesus. That the life of Jesus also might be manifested in my body. That's what Paul said. He said in Galatians 6.17, a very moving passage. He said that he bore in his body the very brand marks of Christ. And he said in Philippians 3... He went through all of this suffering and we go through all of this suffering that we might know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering being conformed to His death. And then Colossians 1.24 that we might fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. What Jesus is telling the apostles, James and John, by asking these questions in verse 38 is that just as the Old Testament had a cup that signified God's allotment of something, Jesus is saying, you have an allotment coming to you. Embrace your suffering. Embrace what you must sacrifice instead of a status that comes without cost. Anything worth anything in life will come with a cost. Something a lot of young people need to learn today. Because there is a sense of entitlement in our world today. Particularly with young people. I see it all the time on the soccer fields. Why do you drive them so hard? I drive them so hard because they're given everything in life. And and if you don't drive them hard, there will be no sacrifice. And without sacrifice, without a cost, there is no glory. That's just on the ball field. 
How much truer is that in life? To be a Christian will cost you something. It will cost you immensely. So forget about status. Too often we're like the apostles, right? We're willing to sacrifice others as the cost. Not us. We're willing to sacrifice others as the cost to secure our own status, to secure our own place of honor in the kingdom. It's what James and John were doing. Selfish ambition, pride. This is not the kingdom way. This leads to no good thing. And Jesus is really just getting warmed up because now he's really going to teach. This leads us to the second principle regarding the ethics of Christ's kingdom. Not only should the ethics of Christ's kingdom be marked by sacrifice over status, but number two, our ethics need to be marked by contentment over competition. Verses 39 through 41. Verse 39 says, And they said to him, We are able. They are answering the question of verse 38 that Jesus asked, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink, be baptized with the baptism in which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. No, they weren't. Number one, because Jesus alone would vicariously suffer to atone for sins, right? He would drink down the cup of God's wrath for sin. He would be overwhelmed with the flood of God's judgment like a baptism in water. But notice what Jesus says. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Your drinking of the cup is not the same as mine. Your baptism is not the same as mine. But in principle, you will suffer as I will suffer. That's the point. They won't suffer vicariously. They won't suffer as an atonement for sins like Jesus' suffering has an impact on the world. But these men too would drink their own cup. These men too would be baptized with their own suffering. Jesus is affirming their suffering. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Of course, They tried to flee from that, right? They all ran when Jesus was arrested. But Jesus is saying, you can run, but you can't hide. You will all suffer. And in fact, somewhat ironic, but not coincidental because God is providential. James was the first martyr executed by Herod Agrippa in Acts 12. John was the last one to suffer on the island of Patmos, the last apostle to die and to suffer for the cause of Christ. They, like us, they didn't know the depth to which their suffering would take them. And dear friends, that is a grace of God. I thank God every day that he does not tell me ahead of time what I must suffer in the future for him. That is a grace of God. But it's also a grace of God Not to tell us ahead of time what our status in the kingdom is going to be. Because this is all an issue of faith. Where is your faith? Are you taking steps of faith to serve the Lord in spite of your suffering, in spite of your sacrifice, to honor the Lord, to honor His truth? 
they didn't understand what they were asking for. And so Jesus says, notice verse 40, you're going to suffer, but to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. The positions they were asking for, to sit at his right hand or his left hand, Jesus says, are not mine to grant. As if to say, during his incarnation, Jesus maintained full equality as God with the Father, but he willingly submitted to the Father and he refused to be manipulated. He refused to go against the positions that had been determined and decreed in God's secret counsel in eternity past. What Jesus is saying in verse 40 is what's done is done. There are positions for whom they are for who. They are for whom God has given them. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. Sovereignly, we could say. Again, back in Matthew chapter 20, in Matthew's version of, of this account, he adds something in Matthew 20 and verse 23 that is perhaps something you should take notice of. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. The Father had done so. Just as he had sent the Son to die for those elected to salvation, so too... We have been elected as believers to the positions God has chosen in His sovereignty to grant us in His kingdom. It is Jesus who ascended and He gave gifts to men. We don't control our gifts. We don't control our positions. We don't control or try to manipulate or fabricate the the type of honor that we want. We leave that to God. And that was Jesus' point. Quit trying to compete with the other apostles. Be content with who you are, the gifts God has given you, and what position you will have. Just be faithful. And then we read in verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Well, gee, I wonder why. They had been left out. This would be natural, right? To be upset that your buddies ran the bus over you, leave you out of their special request. But the reality is they were indignant in a way that was unjustified because they wanted the same thing that James and John wanted. It's just that James and John had the position and their relationship to Jesus being part of the inner circle, likely being related to Jesus. They had the opportunity to try to manipulate The other ten were indignant. They had already debated, right? Chapter 9, verse 34, as to which one of them was the greatest. And this sort of competitive spirit continued in bitterness until the bitter end, even during the Last Supper, when Jesus washed their feet. They were still arguing about which one of them was the greatest. The ethics of Jesus' kingdom not only place sacrifice over status, but also contentment in one's place of service in the kingdom over competition. How is this achieved? Is it wrong to have ambition? Absolutely not. But there is a such thing as sinful ambition. We see it in the church all the time. Paul says in Philippians 2, 
Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The principle of James 4.6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We are to trust in God watching, even when others don't see what we're doing. Paul said in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. We are to trust that God is watching. We aren't to be man pleasers. We're to serve for God's glory as the Lord's servant. Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. Proverbs 25 verse 27 says, It is not glorious to seek your own Glory, that is not glorious. Paul said in Galatians 6, 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We are to persevere in our calling, in our place, in society, in the church, recognizing the cherished gifts He has given us, that He has given others, working to God's glory, resting in His sovereignty, being content with where we are, being humble, being servants of God. And we have to do that because if we don't, then we will not place sacrifice over status. We will not place contentment over competition. That's what Jesus calls us to do. This is not about us. It's about God's glory. These are kingdom ethics. Kingdom ethics in the life of a Christian looks like this. Placing sacrifice over status, contentment over competition, and number three, duty over domination. Verses 42 through 45. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love this. The indignant ten now complain to Jesus and criticize James and John. And it's like Jesus says, all right, let's huddle together. Let's talk about this. What Jesus says here, let me just say this, in verses 42 through 46, applies not just to the church. This applies, as I said in my introduction, to the workplace, to marriage, to business, to sports teams, to government. Any Christian in any leadership position represents the kingdom of Christ. And there is a certain way to lead and a certain way not to lead. And Jesus is telling the 12, look, you are the nucleus of the church. You are the foundation of the church. You are the leaders of the church. You need to understand this is not about domination. It's about duty. And first, Jesus speaks about the way of non-kingdom citizens. And then second, the way of kingdom citizens. Now let me just say something. Those of you who are theologically astute might be familiar with the two-kingdom theory and the one-kingdom theory. 
you're not familiar with it, don't worry about it. If you are familiar with it, let me just tell you, I don't hold to the two kingdom theory. I hold to the one kingdom theory, but I confess to you that my subpoints might indicate that I hold to the two kingdom theory because I speak about non-kingdom citizens. All of the world is Christ's and everyone is in his kingdom in that sense, but there are those in this world who reject his lordship and that's what I'm talking about. There is the way of non-kingdom citizens. Those who don't represent Christ well because they're not true believers. And what does that look like? Verse 42, Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Rulers of the Gentiles, that is those who don't identify with the people of God. Those who do not recognize the lordship of Christ and the kingdom of Christ What does Jesus say? He says they lord it over their subjects and are considered great ones in the world's eyes because they pridefully exercise authority over them. This is the way of the world, right? It's not the way of a Christian. It's not the way of a Christian father. It's not the way of a Christian pastor or a Christian elder. It is not the way of of any leader over a business or someone who has employees underneath them. This speaks of a prideful misuse of power, right? An egomaniac authority. A narcissistic approach. Not giving due consideration to the great responsibility of leadership. It's Really, it's jettisoning the need for accountability and leadership. It's abusing the authority of leadership for selfish ends. Verse 42 is describing really leaders of every age who don't lead the way Christ has modeled leadership to be it's autocratic authoritative demeaning domineering dictatorial self-congratulatory self-promoting patting oneself on the back and notice the language in verse 42 you know that those who are considered rulers of the gentiles lorded over them i mean this is sarcasm those who consider themselves leaders Those who think that they are leaders, Jesus is saying, they really betray the spirit of leadership as defined by God because they lord it over those underneath them. Of course, we affirm, right, that authority is not sinful. It's God-ordained. It's necessary for the family. It's necessary for society. It's necessary for the church. It's necessary for an organization or for a business. But that phrase, notice it in verse 42, exercise authority over them it's the greek word katakorueo it means to gain mastery or power over others it means to subdue in acts 19 it's the same word that is used to describe the evil spirits that subdue a man perhaps indicating the fact that this sort of leadership is demonic The evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them, overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Same Greek word as Acts 19.16. True leadership, by nature, brings with it authority. But this is, exercising authority over is an abuse of authority. It is seeking more authority than what has been delegated to you. More authority that has been granted to you. It's... Abuse of authority. Seeking mastery and power over others in an unbiblical way, in an abusive way. That's not leadership, that's slavery. 
And Jesus says, I can already predict where this is going. If James and John are going to make this request, if the other ten are going to be angry about that because they want those places of position, what is the church going to look like? So he says, the Gentiles are marked by domineering leadership, dictatorial leadership, autocratic leadership, not kingdom citizens. The way of kingdom citizens looks different. Notice verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Leaders become great in God's kingdom, Jesus is saying, not by pursuing domination, but recognizing their God-given duty to serve, right? To serve the interests of those underneath them. This is really a repeat of chapter 9, verse 35. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then Jesus took a child and put him in the midst. If we want to be considered great leaders, Jesus is saying that we must learn to be a servant. If we want to be first, we must be last or slave of all. That's what Jesus is saying here. That is, all those below us that we are leading only want to follow us when we are their servants. Now that's not easy. And that is an inverted pyramid, right? The pyramid of the world says leadership is at the top, everyone else is below. This is an inverted pyramid. It says you want to be a leader in the home? You better sacrifice and you better serve. You want to be a leader in the church? You sacrifice and serve. You want to be a leader in society? You sacrifice, you serve. You want to be a leader in the workplace? You sacrifice, you serve. You set the example. That is the opposite of the world's view of leadership. And in verse 43, please notice your Bibles, Jesus uses the word servant. It's diakonos. It's the Greek word for deacon. It refers to someone waiting on tables. Someone doing the things that others deem insignificant. And also in verse 44, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That's doulos. And that's properly translated slave. Some translations translate it servant, but it's better translated as slave. Jesus is using the lowest of language to describe true leadership. To say... Duty comes before domination. In fact, domination is not even in the scheme of things. It's not wrong to want to be ambitious and to be a leader, but you must be a leader as defined by Scripture. Because true greatness in the kingdom is not found in the one who who climbs over others to get the status they desire. It's one who selflessly climbs down to the lowest rung on the ladder and sees himself as a servant of God and of others. One commentator says this, and I quote, in no place, at no place do the ethics of the kingdom of God clash more vigorously with the ethics of the world than in the matters of power and service. In a decisive reversal of values, Jesus speaks of greatness and service rather than greatness and power, prestige, and authority. And of course, the king of kings is the model here, right? Verse 45, notice your Bibles, For Jesus explains, even, even, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
a ransom for many. Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come in his incarnation. Jesus says, speaking about himself, to be served but to serve. He resolutely humbled himself. He's walking toward Jerusalem when the other disciples are lagging behind, right? He's going to the place of his execution to give his life, as verse 45 says, as a ransom for many. Jesus would say this on one occasion. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus would say on another occasion, John 17, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have sent me to do. Jesus was always deflecting glory off of himself back to the Father. And then he died for sinners, modeling true humility. That's what Paul speaks about if you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus went low before he went high. Jesus went to the cross before he received the crown. That came later, verse 9. Therefore, because of his sacrifice, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That very pattern of Christ and going low before he was raised high is the very pattern that Peter calls us to. Peter tells us this you don't have to turn there, just listen. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. The exalting comes, but it doesn't come by exalting yourself. It comes by humbling yourself, committing yourself to God, sacrifice over status, contentment over competition, duty over domination. Jesus is more than an example, obviously, right? Verse 45 is not just about the fact he's our example. He vicariously suffered a substitutionary death, bearing our sins, paying the price, propitiating God's wrath. He drank the cup of God's fury. He was baptized through the floodwaters of God's judgment in our place for every single elect sinner and every single one of their sins, the good shepherd was the lamb that was slaughtered in our place, meeting fully the demands of justice so we could go free. He paid the ransom. That's the price of a slave to redeem us. And it's not the sort of ransom Origen spoke about, the ransom theory of atonement. The devil does hold sinners in captivity to sin, but his head was crushed. The ransom was not paid to the devil. The ransom was paid to the Father to secure our redemption, to propitiate his wrath, to purchase our freedom. And the truth indeed has set us free. Given us eternal life, forgiven us of our sins, promised us heaven. 
But until we get to heaven, there's a certain way his kingdom citizens live. Sacrifice over status. Contentment over competition. Duty over domination. The church needs to hear this lesson. Church needs to hear this lesson. True leadership is humble leadership. It's not arrogant. The Westminster Confession of Faith speaks uh, in chapter 20 about Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. It says this, God alone is Lord of the conscience. And he hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word, or beside it, if matters of faith or worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. Because the powers which God hath ordained and the liberty which Christ has purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another, they who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, shall oppose any lawful power, or the lawful exercise thereof, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God, and for their publishing of such opinions or maintaining of such practices are contrary to the light of nature or to the known principles of Christianity, whether concerning faith, worship, or conversation, or to the power of godliness, or such erroneous opinions or practices as either in their own nature or in the manner of publishing or maintaining them are destructive to the external peace and order which Christ has established in the church they may lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by the censors of the church they who upon pretense of Christian liberty practice any sin or cherish it also are brought to censor there is a form of leadership in our day and age in the church which dominates which seeks to impose on the conscience of other believers and external rules, lists, a sort of legalism. Jesus is telling the apostles, trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. As leaders of the church, leaders in the home, fathers, husbands, Christian leaders in business, there is a certain humility, there is a certain service, there is a certain gentleness that is to mark true leadership. We are to pray the kingdom of God come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom comes through those who are leaders, those who establish the rule and the reign of Christ, and that is not established in a dictatorial way. No one is saved by being shoved into the kingdom. In our witness for the gospel, we boldly, tell sinners they are sinners. But we actually have relationships with unbelievers. We actually interact with them in such a way that they know we love them. They know we care for them. We can be truthful about where they're going when they die apart from Christ and we should be. But we are representatives of his kingdom. Our job is to serve Our job is to serve Christ, not just in the church, but in the world, in society, in our business. We're called to be servant leaders. We're called to be humble servant leaders that don't pursue self-glory and wrong ambition. We don't impose another 
Christians and on their conscience things that aren't in the word of God and then in snobbery look over them and demean them. That is not service. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is described in the Bible as a family. It's described as a family that serves one another, provokes one another to fear the Lord. As iron sharpens iron, so we sharpen one another. We do that by serving one another, loving one another, sacrifice over status, contentment over competition, duty over domination. This, in a nutshell, composes the ethics of Christ's kingdom. And we take what we do in a small way in the church and we duplicate that out in the world. In every interaction that we have, we duplicate that sort of representation of the kingdom of God. And we pray for his kingdom to come and trust that his powerful gospel will invade this world and that he will reign supreme. Father, we thank you for the scriptures which bring to bear upon our souls truths that we need to hear. Father, it is always so helpful to look at the lives of the apostles, Lord, to see their sin, which was so obvious, but it's like a window into our own souls. They say things and do things that we do. Father, forgive us where we have sought self-glory over your glory. Help us as individual Christians to be the type of citizens of your kingdom that place sacrifice over status, contentment over competition, duty over domination. Father, help us to be like Christ who came not to be served, but to serve. He gave his life a ransom for many, paying for our sins, Lord, so that we could be in your kingdom, that we could glorify you rightly. Help us, Lord, in this world to impact others with the gospel. Help us, Lord, in all of our roles and all of our spheres to properly represent Christ, to live out the kingdom ethic, to love you with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to do that in the church, to do it outside of the church, praying that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. We'll give you the glory for it as we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.